0: Welcome to Leading Forward, where we focus on building healthy leaders for healthy organizations. I'm Matthew Hall, and I'm joined today by Ben Dockery. Ben, how are you? I'm doing great, Matt. How are you? Good, good. I've, have you ever been? Um, have you ever tried
1: canoeing? I have canoed before. Yes, I have with children in the canoe. Any and, uh, any capsizing? Did you did you was there was there a lot yeah, of water? We have we have, we have tipped uh, and rescued you know the kid downstream. So yeah, I've got. I've got a couple of those uh stories under my belt.
0: Yeah, I, I've got canoeing on the brain, I guess, just because of our guest today. Um and and I'm not an outdoorsman. People who know me know I, I was made for concrete, for cities, for beaches, um, but I don't I don't do well in a canoe balance isn't, isn't a whole genetic trait, but, uh, our, our guest today has, has used this canoe metaphor. So tell us a little bit, why do I have canoes on the brain and, and who are we talking to today? Yeah, we're talking
1: with Todd Bolsinger, who is the author, um, of a couple different, just really helpful leadership books, uh, that are there. We talked, um, about his most recent one, uh, tempered resilience. And then he also has one called canoeing the mountains, um, which, which helps people as well. Todd currently, is he's leading through A.E. Sloan Leadership, uh, which is an executive coaching group. They do consulting, work with nonprofit leaders, uh, work with marketplace leaders, church leaders uh, to help them uh, through the change process and really a wealth of information. I mean, I have have read his books, uh, but even learned, even hearing him interact with some of these uh, concepts today was really helpful to me. I don't know for you if there was anything that stood out today, but what was the highlight?
0: Yeah, th- I remember reading Tempered Resilience, as you said, his most recent book, w- when it came out, and it touched a nerve, honestly. It, 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 it clarified or it gave me categories to say, oh, that's, that's why that works that way, or that's why this experience has is, is taken the shape. When he explains how leaders in an organization, when they experience resistance within the organization or from their own tribe. Uh, to change when he explains what what's actually going on there is is the sense of loss. Um that's the, that's kind of at the deepest level. And I thought both when I read the book and he unpacks it here in our conversation today that was incredibly helpful for me to understand what's going on and then how can I as a leader especially as a Christian leader try to lead people through that in a way that's patient and honest and 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 empathetic even. So, I found that a lot of things in the conversation, level, but that, that stood out to me today. What about you?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I am, I think in metaphor. And so, the fact that he's, he's driving a metaphor through, um, you know, both of those books that we talked about primarily and uh, Tempered Resilience specifically, um, I, you know, I think I relate to the way that he communicates really well and this, this concept of how it is that you as an individual continue to allow yourself to be tempered to go into the fire and allow not to just stay at 700 degrees, but go up to 2000 degrees and, and really be vulnerable and pliable for a moment, but then come out and, uh, and work through some of those things, the way that spiritual practices um, play a role in, in that. Cause I am given to, I can just go harder. I can try more. I can be, as he says, tougher. Um, and that's how I'm going to be resilient, but that's actually not the way that uh, tempered and resilient uh, leaders are formed. And so reminded of that and
0: yeah, great conversation today and uh, really enjoyed it. I know our listeners are going to learn a lot. Yeah. If if you're listening to this and like a lot of leaders, you are feeling like you're stretched thin and you're wondering how, you know, what does resilience look like? This conversation, I really believe is going to be really helpful for you in clarifying what resilience is. It's not just being smarter. It's not just being tougher even. It is something different altogether. And so we hope this interview with Todd Bolsinger is helpful to you. We'll have all the information that we've mentioned in the show notes. And we would ask you again, if you find it helpful, share it with a friend and help us get the word out on on this episode in particular. That said, here's our interview with Todd Bolsinger. Well, Todd Bolsinger, welcome to Leading Forward. It is nice to be with you guys. Thank you very much for having me. We're delighted that you're joining us for this conversation. And before we started recording, Todd, I, I mentioned that when the idea for leading forward was kind of birthed with, you know, between Ben and I and some other friends who got involved, your book, Tempered Resilience, was was one of those books that really we was kind of haunting us, I think, a little bit mm-hmm. and thinking through, okay, how can we do better in building healthy leaders for healthy organizations. So I just want to say we've been looking forward to having you on the show, and it's, uh, it's very rewarding. But before we really get into a lot of your writing and the work you've done to help in that space, I, I want to know a little bit about high school, Todd. And uh, I've, I've read somewhere that in a different life, if things had taken a different course, you might have ended up a park ranger, can you tell us about that story?
2: Yeah, I, I joke that um, I took biology after lunch. And so I got a C minus in biology because I slept through it. And if I had gotten a better grade, I would have been a national park ranger. That's what I really would have wanted to do. Um, I love the outdoors. Even today, I have a little house in the mountains of Idaho um, that I get to as often as I possibly can. Whenever I am discouraged, I think I could do trail maintenance in the national park. I could just like go pick up cans, or remove rocks. and someday. I am going to be a person who does trail maintenance and trout rescue. And I want to be a ski host who puts four people on a quad chair. So there's no lift lines. Like, so
0: you've thought the, this through, you've, you've given this the, a lot of thought. These
2: are my retirement goals. I'm really, I'm already ready for them. So someday I am going back um, to that kind of world that I, that, that, uh, as a Presbyterian, I think that was preordained from the beginning of time. So, so Yeah, I think like, you're
0: on solid ground. Yeah, but, where right. did you, where did you grow up? I mean, were you, did you grow up in a place that was surrounded by kind of Natural beauty and conservation? Well,
2: I I grew up actually in Southern California, but I had parents who were teachers and every summer they would pack us on the back of our trailer and we'd go off to the national parks. And so um, I just fell in love with going to national parks and still do to this day.
0: Last question on that theme is, is, do you have a favorite one? You mentioned Idaho and do you have a favorite national park that is kind of your happy place?
2: Yeah. My favorite national park is because it was the first place where I fell in love with it all is the Grand Tetons. It's, um, if I can just last year, we went back to the Grand Tetons and Yellowstone again, those mountains uh, just speak to me of like they awaken something in me when I saw them as a kid. I took my kids there when my son was six and my daughter was three. And today my son is like doing a master's in environmental protection um, in, you know, in uh, environmental public policy at University of Washington um, because he's just going to spend his life trying to protect the out- outdoors.
0: Yeah, well, maybe maybe in your retirement plan you'll be working for him. Exactly. Uh, that's, that's, that might be how that works out. Uh, one other question I've got, just hearing a bit of your story, is you also lead a an executive coaching firm, uh, the A.E. Sloan Leadership Firm, yeah, yeah. and uh, I know a lot of people ask, well, what's with the name? So can you tell us a little bit about two people that show up a little bit in your, in your most recent book, and Enid Sloan? Yeah, tell us about yeah. the Sloanes and how they have affected and shaped your life?
2: Al and Enid Sloan uh, both passed away. I met them when they were 68 years old, and they were leaders at the church that called me to be a young senior pastor. So Al Sloan was 68, and I was 33, and he uh, was on the search committee that called me to San Clemente. And he said to me, before I accepted the, the invitation to be on the search committee, Enid and I prayed, and we decided whoever God was going to come and bring to be our pastor, we were going to dedicate the rest of our lives to helping them have a great ministry and a great life. And I mean, literally, every time I tell that story, I get choked up. And I think almost every pastor feels the lump in their throat, right? To know that there are these people who just said, we will dedicate ourselves for you and your family to have a great ministry and a great life. And they did. And they loved us and cared for us. And they literally show up in every one of my books— and after they passed away, I went to their adult kids and Beth and I said, you know, we are going to basically start, take our, we've done some speaking and consulting and coaching and we're going to put it to a new little company and we want to name it after your parents, because I don't think coaching and consulting needs to, should be named after me. Um, and my job is to help other people be the people who are the leaders out front. And they were that for us. Um, they loved us, cared for us, mentored us gave their lives to us and they are are the inspiration for our, both our company and for the work we do every day.
0: That's
1: fantastic. What, a, I mean, what, a, like you said, as a pastor at uh, different times in my life, I would, would love to have someone show up and um, and say something exactly like that. So what a gift given to you. I'm glad you're passing on and retelling that story. Um, yeah. One of the stories you told in the beginning is one, I, this is, I'm just curious, you can retell it for our listeners here. Those who may not have had a chance to, to, to read the book, but, you're asked to give this startup pitch in Silicon Valley and this gets at sort of the core of the metaphor and what you're working through um, in your newest book here. Will you retell that story and some things that you learned as a result of that moment?
2: Yeah. So after 27 years of being a pastor, I went to back to Fuller seminary where I got my master's and my PhD to be a senior vice president. And, um, and basically my job was to take on projects that they knew, they needed to take on in order to help rethink theological education. So after three years of working on one project, I started a second one. And the second project was really all about how do we think about serving leaders who don't want our degrees and they don't want to take on debt, but they want to be like lifetime learners. Like, and so how, how could a seminary do that? And so I was kind of commissioned with that. I made a presentation to our board of trustees and one of the lo- one of the trustees who is a lawyer in Silicon Valley said you're talking about doing a startup in a really traditional institution. I mean, seminaries, the seminary business model is 1,100 years old. <laughs> it goes back to monasteries. Right? This is not exactly robust, innovative, creative people. And and he said, you know, this usually that doesn't go well. So he invited me to fly to Palo Alto, it's just an hour flight from where I live in Pasadena, and meet with a group of folks, all Christians, who were all in the startup world, venture capitalists, they work for the, some of the famous companies we know, they're consultants, and they basically said, hey, our language is the pitch, so give us a 10-minute pitch as if you wanted us to fund a company. We're not giving you any money, but we are going to give you like some in- input. And at the end of 10 minutes, they looked at me and they smiled and they went, You've been doing that talk around the seminary a lot, haven't you? And I'm like, oh, yeah, I got to get the trustees on board. That's why I'm here. I got to get the faculty on board. I got to hire staff, you know, who have got solid jobs who now have to work with me on something I got to raise money for. Oh, yeah. He said, yeah, because you just gave us a pitch on why this is really important because it will help the seminary survive. Todd, nobody cares if the seminary survives. Nobody cares if institutions survives. Nobody cares if your institution survives. They only care if your institution cares about them. So now get outside the seminary and go talk to people about what is the pain in their life that you might be able to serve and, and then what changes will it require you? And, and, and that's at the heart of it, the work I do every single day. Every single day I work with mostly church and nonprofit leaders who are asking the question, how do we need to change as our organization, our congregation? Me as a leader, in order to address a place of pain in the world, and how's that going to require us to be changed and transformed? Because that transformation is going to have to happen, and that became that's really the center of the work I do every single day is around that. And that really embarrassing moment <laughs> sitting in front of—I mean, the worst part of the whole thing was that the guy who's the guy who was the most senior venture capital guy says to me you know, you're a Christian. Didn't the Bible say you should like love your neighbor as yourself? You're talking a lot about yourself. I'm thinking the day the venture capitalist has the seminary professor redo a Bible study. That's a bad day for the seminary professor, (laughs) but but it was a really important day for
1: me. Yeah. And I love that story, not just because of your humility in the moment of of catching it, but also how it led to you know, a level of resilience that you were showing to get back up and to change that as well. But what you what you learn from it and how you reframe some of that stuff. And so it, it, I mean, it was helpful to me for a number of reasons. One, I've got something similar like that coming up in the next few months of my own life. And I thought, oh, my goodness, I'm doing exactly what Todd described in the story. How do I have this instinct?
2: What is this? Yeah.
1: yeah. Um, so talk to us a little bit about with tempered resilience, uh, the metaphor, the, the metaphor you're similar to uh, the story that Matt asked you about your own life. It sounds like that uh, the metaphorical side of your upbringing and love for the mountains and those things run through uh, canoeing the mountains. And now you're, you had an experience where you had a chance to, to work with it a, tempered object and to work with a hammer and an anvil and all those things. And so what really is the driving metaphor you're getting at and, and how have you found that helpful in, in different places? Yeah. So
2: tempered resilience is a, is a blacksmithing metaphor. And where it came from, to be honest, was I was visiting Washington, D.C. and I was looking at the Martin Luther King Jr. Memorial in Washington, D.C. And there's a phrase that comes out of the famous I Have a Dream speech where he says, with this faith, we'll be able to hew out of a mountain of despair, stones of hope. And for those who know the story, you know, um, the I have a dream section wasn't originally in the speech. It was because the metaphor he was using didn't work that Mahalia Jackson, a gospel singer, yelled at him, tell him about the dream, Martin. And so he starts tell he basically starts with Isaiah 40. And what he basically does is he says to these people who have come from the front lines of the civil rights movement, right? These folks who've come from the, you know, the protests and the marches and the lunch counters and the dogs and the hoses and the jails, right? With this faith, because we believe a day is coming when God is going to redeem this world down to the dirt, because that's going to happen. We go back to work. We go back to the lunch counters and the protests and the dogs and the hoses and the jails. And then he says, with this faith, we'll be able to hew out of a mountain of despair, stones of hope. And that led me down this thing to thinking about what kind of tool can hew? Like hewing is not a sledgehammer that bashes through something. And it's not dynamite that blows it up. And it's, and it's not backing down because you're discouraged. And in the text, he has, you know, if you, if you listen to it, it says, we'll be able to hew out of a mountain of despair, stones of hope. We'll be able to transform the jangling discords of our nation into a beautiful symphony of brotherhood. And that's, that's classic parallelism for any of us who preach or speak. That's like a masterclass, right? You link together two ideas, hue and transform. So I started asking the question, what kind of tool that can hue? What's the difference between a chisel and a sledgehammer and a chisel really is a tempered tool. It's both stronger than the raw material, but it's also flexible. It's not just a hammer. That's hard. And there's a process that goes through of creating temper tools, and so I took a couple of blacksmithing classes. I'm not good at it. <laughs> I'm just and I and I was in a there's a blacksmithing community in Los Angeles. There there hasn't been a horse there in a hundred years, but there are blacksmiths, and what they work on is how you they'll help they'll teach you how to make tools, including temper tools.
0: I would imagine that standing a, by a forge with an anvil, it's a great way to also let out some distress and uh, just hammer away at, at unforged steel. But yeah, um, um, others of us have other outlets for that. But I think the metaphor is so powerful. And and Todd, you alluded to it. One thing that stood out to me in the book, Intempered Resilience, is when you distinguish between a failure of nerve and a failure of heart. Yeah, And just honestly, even since the book came out, that distinction seems all the more um, apparent when I talk to leaders and organizations, whether they're in church context, nonprofits, or even in the corporate world. We've heard a lot about the great resignation of 2021. Can you explain to us, what do you mean by this distinction between a failure of heart and a failure of nerve?
2: Yeah. So, so failure of nerve is from Edwin Friedman's work. He talked to, he's got a book called A Failure of Nerve. And what he means is, Um, What he was identifying is that for most leaders, the most challenging thing they face, I mean, soul sucking thing they face is not the challenge out there in the world. It is the resistance of your own people. (laughs) It's when your own people resist the very thing they asked you to lead them in. Right. So it's when it's, you know, in the book I talk about, you know, Moses taking them through the Red Sea. And six weeks later, after the greatest miracle any humans had ever seen, they're saying slavery. Hmm. Bummer. They killed our children. But we had leeks and onions. You know, lunch was pretty good. Maybe we should go back. And the failure of nerve is where the leader colludes with the anxiety of the group and stops the change process. And it's usually well-intended. It's usually a person saying stuff like, look, we, wanna, we don't want to have change fatigue, and we want to care for our people, and we want to make sure that everybody's okay. But if you stop the process in the middle of the desert, you're going to die. You've got to get to the promised land. And it could be a long trip. The failure of heart is what I see in Moses in Numbers 11. When after God has provided the manna for them, after they have a miracle every morning, they 're still grumbling now, not because they 're hungry because they 're bored they 're bored of manna, and they want to go back, and Moses gets mad and The failure of heart is the, what I experience in a lot of leaders who have just become cynical and angry and disconnected because of the resistance of your people it 's i mean I say at the seminary, we have almost everybody who comes to the seminary came many of them already working in churches and they show up with what we call post-traumatic church disorder. Like they're already angry and they're already mad and they're discouraged and they're not sure they want to do this thing. And so many leaders have got to wrestle with, you know, do you have a failure of nerve where you tend to collude with the non change because you don't like the anxiety of the disappointment of your people? Or do you end up getting bitter and cynical? You know, my friend Jimmy Miato is the president of compassion International, And he said to me, at a board of trustees meeting a fuller once he said you know the problem with doing the work of god is it can undo god's work in you and i think that's where some of us have found ourselves we're just we're either getting we're just getting angry and cynical disconnected
0: from our people so how if somebody again i'm, I'm imagining i won't make up a name here but you know so and so in in such and such place is listening to you right now and they're going Uh, this is a little, this hits a little close to home and I'm a little worried. What if, what if what Todd's describing is something that marks my life and leadership right now? And I don't even know it. Can you tease it out a little bit? What would be some, maybe even diagnostics you'd give Mm -hmm. to self-reflection? Yeah. And then what is it you're trying to say? Well, there's a better way rather than capitulating to a failure of nerve or, or succumbing to a failure of heart. What's the better way? Two, well, t- two questions there. Yeah,
2: yeah well, the, the most important thing that I learned in this work, so so basically tempered resilience was my attempt to take uh, spiritual formation literature, which is where my PhD started. I mean, I did work on communal practices, of spiritual formation, and leadership literature, which is where I've spent the bulk of my time in the last 10 years and pulled them together. And what you realized is there. it's interesting to recognize that when we talk about leaders being resilient, what we mostly think they're saying is, oh, suck it up, buttercup, just try harder. And the answer isn't that, actually. The answer is acknowledge truthfully where you are and that your, lead, your formation as a leader begins in the challenge of leading. You usually don't start developing tempered resilience until you're facing the mountain of despair. So instead of feeling bad that you're feeling bad, acknowledge this is actually when the formation process happens and that resilience isn't found. It's formed. And you're going to have to start a process of formation while you're leading, and so it starts. The very first place it starts is acknowledging that you need a lot of honest, vulnerable reflection. Like acknowledging, I mean, I, 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 when I coach and consult and we work with people, I ask them, just think about the last leadership challenge that you faced. You know, were you tempted more toward a failure of nerve or a failure of heart? And for some of us, it's failure of nerve. You know, we we don't want to disappoint our people. We we're shepherds. We care about them. We love them. I would say, you know, we, we got into this because we love God and we love people. And we want to help the people we love know the God we love. And we mostly want to do that by building churches they love and having missions they love and ministries they love. What's not to love? So all of a sudden, when it gets hard, we can cave failure of nerve, or we just find ourselves so disappointed so discouraged and so angry that we have this failure of heart. And so we disconnect and that first part of vulnerable self-reflection is like the heat that heats up the steel to get it soft enough for God to be able to work on it. And then there's a process of reflection and relationships and practices or rule of life um, that we take people through in the book.
1: And I think the um, just the language of resilience, you know, for me, verse, you talked about being tougher. And my instinct is certainly for myself, to just say, man, I just gotta flex. Wake up a little bit earlier. Email a few more people. Get out in front of this. I have a few more meetings, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna knock this out. And uh, it hasn't always gone well for me <laughs> 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 uh, trying to trying to do it that way. Uh, certainly, I, I am curious if there is a you've been you know you've now been getting feedback. I'm sure uh, from this book for quite a while. Is there a when I thought specifically about this, those who are you're getting resistance from your own people in the midst of this. Is there a, is there a sector of society right now? That uh, maybe because of the training that they had or um, because of just the industry that they're in, that, that seems to be doing a better job or seems to be uh, moving, moving through some of the current challenges we're facing better than others. Uh, so I'm thinking military folks. From the beginning, they think, oh, we're not going to get, we're getting resistance. We're expecting it. Some church pastors think everyone's going to love me and cheer for me and, you know, whatever else. Are, are, there, are there people that you, or maybe areas of uh, leadership right now you see are doing it well that we can follow and learn from?
2: Well, I would say, you know, for me, the key thing is in, in almost every sector, you have both, right? So you have, uh, you have companies that are being really um, resilient, creative, interesting, innovative, and others that are going down. Right, you have. You say the military is really an interesting example. You know, Stanley McChrystal's book "Team of Teams" talked about what it was like to face Al Qaeda in Iraq and realized that the most well-equipped, richest, most well-trained army in the world couldn't beat these folks. So they had to change. It starts with just the vulnerability. So to me, the question I always ask is. Is there the humility to learn and think again and and to be willing to adapt? And if wherever I see that in every sector, and a lot of times it's not the stars, it's in the little tiny, small church, the small nonprofit, the small environment, you'll find those are the folks who are going to be doing better because what they think about is we've got to be willing to learn as we go. We got to be humble. We got to be willing to... To, you, know, you can't outwork this thing. I always, I always say the big mistake of so many leaders is we know what to do. We'll just paddle harder. Well, using the metaphor, country in the mountains, if you're in a boat and there isn't any water, paddling harder is going to exhaust you quicker. So what you got to do is be willing to get out of the boat and drop it and figure out a different way. And for many of us, if you're an expert water person, you paddle a long time before you'll give up that boat. Especially if you built it with your own hands, right? So I think the answer, I don't know if there's any particular segment, but I do think that within almost every industry, there are people who are, try- are doing this and are being disrupted, are disruptive in a good way. They're, but they're also fighting resistance in a really profound way.
0: Todd, that resonates. I mean, I mean, as I reread the book, honestly, and thought about even what's changed in the world since the book first came out. Yeah. Uh, to the Tempered Resilience book and even all your other books. You say something in Tempered Resilience that, you know, I think a lot of us think a lot of, we give a lot of thought and energy to leading through change. But you make a point in your book that when people resist change, what they're fundamentally resisting is not so much even the change as it is a sense of loss. And that honestly strikes me even more now in 2022, when we're recording this, than it did when I originally read it I, I'd love for you to share with us a little bit what is it what is it that we need to understand as leaders about the power of that sense of loss and how it shows up within an organization and how leaders account for it and and maybe even if you've had any, any reflection just on how the last couple of years have brought that out I mean I, just, I can't tell you how many pastors in particular I talk to who say I, I'm, I'm feeling that right there. What Todd Bolsinger identified, that's what I've experienced in the last two years in my, in my leadership and in my ministry.
2: Yeah. So the, 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 that quote is not mine. That quote comes from Ronald Heifetz at Harvard University, who is the kind of the godfather of adaptive leadership. Adaptive leadership is the kind of leadership you need when there are no best practices. It's like when, you, when, the, when there's no expert who can solve the problem and you're going to have to go through transformation and learn as you go. Like there's the key piece. So what he discovered and what he identified, which in, in one sense is really helpful for us as the faith leaders is people aren't resisting change. They're resisting loss. And the center of our faith is about embodying people through loss, right? Like if you will, if you just think about this, we were all trained. Those of us who are pastors were all trained to walk with people through grief and loss. we, the, the, the Gospels call us to you know leave our nets, to, to pick up our cross, uh, to become the seed that falls to the earth and dies to bear much fruit. Like there's this imagery of loss all the way through it. The problem is that most of us have lived in a season and in a culture where being a person of faith hasn't meant loss. It's meant power and privilege and prestige. And so we're fighting to hold on to things, Like we're fighting to hold on to canoes when there's no water and they're exhausting us. So when you start recognizing that people are experiencing loss, then two things happen. One is it's normal. You can normalize it. The second thing is you can also empathize with it. My leadership is not about trying to get people to charge or shame them. It's to accompany them through the necessary losses that they can find the fruitfulness that comes on the other side. And that's becomes a really central way of thinking about, I think how faith leaders particularly can lead through this time.
0: Yeah. I I think that's so helpful because so much of the conversation that we hear is that sense of loss that shows, it shows up as anger or, or, and sometimes it's vented for the world to see on media outlets, even and leaders who are going, I don't, you know, it's this this group in my church. They weren't angry a year ago, or this the CEO or vice president in their company is going. I thought everything was fine. And then out of nowhere, it seems like there's this this conflict that's really, as you said, at this sense of loss. So I think even what you said about helping have helping us develop empathy as leaders to say, okay, this this looks like this person's just rageful. But actually, there's a sense of loss, and how can I shepherd them as a leader through that yeah. in, a, in a patient but honest way as well? Yep.
2: If you can help people identify the loss um, and the sadness and the grief, then they don't have to turn as quickly to anger and fear and power and doing the kinds of things to hold on. They're trying to hold on to something, right? And any of us who've ever gone through a loss, right, we, we try hard to you know, we get angry, we bargain, we do whatever we can, instead of realizing that it is in the loss that we find the new day, and that's hugely painful. But it's also really where kind of the fruitfulness of life develops.
1: And as you're empathizing, I mean, you continue to um, talk about it. This is a this is a change process. We are going somewhere. We're not just staying in that moment of loss, but. And one of the phrases, and again, this may be a Heifetz quote, I can't remember, um, but you emphasized that one of the jobs of the leader is to disappoint um, your people uh, at a rate in which they can actually absorb or <laughs> in a rate in which they can, uh, they can stand it. So talk a little bit about what you're talking about there, where you're actually, you are disappointing uh, your own people. And as you're making these changes,
2: well, that is actually, that's when Heifetz was asked, how do you define leadership? That's how he defined it. Disappointing your own people at a rate they can absorb. <laughs> And, and if you think about it, which I, what I love about that quote is that it does kick up immediately for many of us, the thing that we didn't expect to do. Like we didn't get into this to disappoint people. We got in, most of us got into this. We were willing to give up, you know, big salaries and corner offices and big prestigious things so that we can love and care for people. And what we expected is for them to be proud of us and cheer us on and be grateful for for us. And now we all of a sudden we find people mad at us. I mean, I, I coach, I'm working with right now between the work I do at the seminary and the work I do in my company, we're working with leaders or teams at 60 churches at the moment. So this is what we do is every day. And what we find is the hardest part for the leader is literally to deal with how do I face a congregation who's mad at me right now, no matter what I do. Like just like one guy said, my, t- my inbox is a terrible place to be. Like, just no matter what we do, they're mad. And it, and it's so hard to get them to go, this isn't really about you. It's about our day. But this is what we're in. It's like we are in this moment where especially the amount of change is so disoriented and so exhausting to people that we're going to have to take people through those losses in order to get to the life on the other side.
1: Yeah. Th- I mean, that is really helpful and certainly rings true. I mean, the inbox is a little bit of a, depending on which day it is and what, what name shows up, uh, yeah, there's some PTSD that's okay. I'm not sure that I've got the emotional health right now to is even open this the, one. Is that just
0: the emails I send you, Ben? Do yeah, I, that's just oh, our, uh, our okay. correspondence, okay. Matt. That's just well, those. I'll, I'll try
1: to throttle it back a little, yeah. Yeah, that's right. So one of the things that for me that I didn't expect uh, when I read this and I've tried to think about this you know, over, over time is many people are familiar with the phrase that uh, without vision, the people will perish. And one of the things I remember you talking about is without vision, the leader will perish and how energizing that um, having to stand up and cast vision is for the individual themselves, not just for the community, not just for the business, not just the organization, but the leader themselves Um, that she or he in, in just uh, retelling the story and recasting why it is we do what we do is motivating for the individual. Am I, am I remembering that right? Have you seen that happen over you seeing leaders, missing that aspect of their own leadership right now
2: well ed friedman is the one who's who used to say that folks you know whenever somebody was feeling really down he'd say get up in front of your people and give an i have a dream speech that's what he called it give an i have a dream speech and his point was to say that when you we think a cast the, the mistake that we make is we think that casting a vision will so motivate people they'll all follow us you know we got henry v in our heads you know one more time into the breach dear friends or we we think that they're all going to mobilize sometimes it does what it actually does is it clarifies for you what you most are energized by. And it calls people, they call it like the Nightingale song. It calls people to you who resonate with you. It might be a small band. And it might be a small thing. But having to stand in front of a group of people and get really clear on this is what really matters to me can be very energizing because it helps you get, get clear on if I can't solve everything in the world, here's the thing I feel like I'm called to take on. And, and one of the books that's helped me with this is Greg McEwan's book, Essentialism. Well, he will say to people, you know, you, if you can't solve every problem, what's the one problem that you, that you can give yourself to that will be your highest contribution. And I got to tell you that focusing, that sharpening the needle can really energize people. I, I, I've worked with pastors who've said to me, you know, I I don't know if I want to even keep doing this job. And I'll say, well, if if you could create the church of your dreams, what would you do? What would you be? And they will never, never say, Oh, a church of complacent people who would all just really be happy and give a lot of money and make it easy. So I can golf a lot. They actually have these profound things like, I want a church where people who are broken and who don't believe God exists would show up just because they know they'd be loved and they'd go on a journey, right? Like they'll say, these things are beautiful. And what's amazing is when I say to them, so what keeps you from building that? Now we actually start having a conversation because now they're actually energized. That is, that's what I want to do every single morning. It's, and it's, it's at the heart of it. It is the definition of resilience uh, in the book, Andrew Zolli Defines resilience as you know, you're maintaining core purpose and integrity in the face of dramatically changing circumstances. Maintaining core purpose and integrity. I, I always joke if you spend ten minutes with me, you know I'm not a maintain kind of guy. That's a, that's not a verb that gets me out of bed in the morning. But core purpose, integrity. Here's what I'm really
0: about, and here's who I really am. That's worth becoming resilient for. There's a lot of literature out there obviously leading doesn't happen in a vacuum it has to happen in community and we're formed by relationships but even what you've just articulated about you know the nightingale syndrome of you know drawing people to yourself where are we getting it wrong? Where are do you think Christians in the in the in their church context or in the marketplace where are we maybe failing to account for the complexities of how God's made us to be in community? And, and I, I guess, just to cut to the chase, we've seen a lot of headlines, some of them heartbreaking of Christian leaders who have bombed out or burned out in their ministries and in their leadership. And it's not often, you know, the old school, if we can use that term, old school scandals of sex and money, so to speak, it's they just a complete failure to know how to, how to relate to other people yeah, yeah. In, a, in a humane, fundamentally Christian way. So... Can you connect some dots for us there on, on what you just articulated about, yeah, none of us want to be managers. We want to lead through change and we want to be on mission. And yet, why do we seem to be having such a hard time with defining kind of a, a, a more healthy vision of leadership mm-hmm. that, that takes people seriously?
2: Well, so one of the principles of, um, of, of this kind of systems work is today's problems are built on yesterday's successes. Like, like what a problem is today is usually we are still trying to hold on to the success of yesterday. So if if you're an expert water navigator and you're really, really good and you run out of water, your temptation is just to believe that it's all about finding a river and paddling harder or deciding that you're really not about discovery. You're really about preserving canoeing, right? (laughs) Like there's something about that. So what you end up having is realizing that so many things – that we deal with today are people longing for what's familiar. They want to go back to the glory days. And that's because they can. They remember when it was good. And they just think if we could just go back there, we'll be fine. And I would say, remember, the root word of family and familiar are the same root word. So when you're in an unfamiliar place, you feel unfamilied. Like, you don't just feel as if you are disrupted. You feel abandoned. And so you're, you're hungering to go back. So just think of, think of all the conversations that we're having about race at the moment and all the conversations we're having about, you know, the fear of Christianity becoming marginalized. You know, we, we're the, we're for the first time in our history, less than 50% of Americans are now members of a religious community of any kind. We think what we just need to do is go back. And what we realize is in that desire to go back, what you're actually doing is you're going, you're, you're going backwards into something that will keep you from being able to thrive in a changing environment. The answer is to actually learn and move forward and learn through it. So, so many of the things you see happening today are really this angry, you know, grieving desire to try to recapture something of the past instead of go through the transformation that will take us into our future. And that's really hard for, le- it's hard for leaders to lead into that because people can remember the past and you're telling them, we don't know what the future is. We just trust the God who's going to take us forward.
0: I've found Todd in, in my life and, and my wife has seen this firsthand with me. It's been really important for me to be able to go into places or spaces, including my own local church, frankly, where I can say, you know what, that's not my decision. What do you think about, like, I don't have to have an opinion about that. I, there's no leadership burden on me in that environment, whatever the environment may be. Yeah. And I have found for me that that's been a really important part of kind of keeping me sane, frankly, and also just having some kind of sabbathing, thing, so to speak, in terms of just decision fatigue and all those things that can come. You talk a little bit about that. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us why is that important and how, how should leaders think about setting aside leadership from time to time or in different spaces? Why, why is that important?
2: Well, when you think about the process of blacksmithing, everybody thinks of the anvil and the fire and the hammers. And, you know, you're basically pounding the steel into shape so that it becomes a tool. What people don't realize is the tempering part is where after heating and holding and hammering, it slowly cools down and you repetitively heat it and hammer it and slowly cool it down. It's that, that's the, the way that when you have a rhythm of slowly cooling down, it begins to pull the stress out of the steel. Uh, if you took something that you were working on, you plunged it into water, cold water, it actually locks the stress in. So a tempering process is different. If you're doing something to hang on the wall, cool it down, put it on the wall. You want to create something that's tempered, that has flexibility. You've got to go through a process of slowly cooling it down repetitively. That process is what the tempering does. And so what I've said to most leaders is you need a rhythm in your life of places where you're not leading. You need just places in your life where you're learning, receiving, being cared for, caring, uh, being competent. I mean, I, I, I joke that my, my, one of my spiritual practices during the pandemic has been to take up cooking. And I come from a family of cooks. My parent, my grandparents had an Italian restaurant. I cook almost every weekend. Love it. For my birthday, I cook the meal. Why? I make people happy. <laughs> like, when, when you cook stuff for people, uh, oh my gosh, they're happy. There's no, there's no competing values. There's no loss. There's just good learning, right? Um, I need places in my life where I feel competent. I need places in my life where I'm making people happy. I need places in my life where I get to play and relax and rest. So, so yeah, I believe deeply in Sabbath. I also believe in having places in your life where you're not having to bring change and you can
0: enjoy yeah. it. I mean, I love your personal example of learning um, that you love to cook and feed people. Now, some of us would not be allowed anywhere near okay. a kitchen and with good reason because it would be a disaster and, and there might be even liability issues involved if people got food poisoning. Yeah. So what are there some examples you could give us that you've just seen with other leaders that you've said, okay? Here, here are some other ways to discern and discover what can be some healthy outlets for somebody to set aside their leadership, for example, so that they are you know, going through that regular cycle of, of heating and cooling. Any examples that come to your mind? from? Yeah, so the I years? would say
2: enjoy, go join any place where you get to be the beginner. Allow yourself. Most of us, by the time we become leaders, it's been a long time since we've been a beginner at anything. We've, we feel almost embarrassed to be a beginner. So go, go learn something new. Go try something new. I mean, one of the reasons I love being outside nature is nature doesn't want anything of me. I always remember, like, this: these mountains have been here millions of years. They're going to be here long and until Jesus tarries. They will be here, right? I get to just be in them and enjoy them. It doesn't need anything of me. I, um, I think having hobbies that are completely about the way they allow you to focus. Um, I, I, mine are almost all outdoors, but one of the reasons why I took up fly fishing is I just wanted to have something where I need to focus on this tiny microscopic little artificial bug on the river. If my phone goes off, I won't catch a fish instead. It makes me, it's almost Zen like how much I have to focus. And I just really, for like hours go away and stress goes away and my brain goes to creative places. And I just need places like that in my life that are not about the changes that I have to bring in almost every other place in my life.
0: Ben, is that why you, you took up uh, synchronized swimming? Is that, <laughs> yeah. Trying to feel actually, I'm already an expert in that area, Matt. So okay. I, I was thinking of you as God. Here. Yeah. Okay.
1: Yeah, yeah. That's right. So I do, I mean, Todd, as we're wrapping this up, what resistance have you faced in uh, just with publishing this book? It's been out for I don't know what eighteen, sixteen, eighteen months. I'm not sure the, the time frame. Whenever it came out, have you have you had any pushback? Have you had any uh, folks that have that have tried to uh, you know make some adjustments or critiques that you've learned from as you published uh, this most recent book?
2: Less so with tempered resilience. I got what much more pushback on canoeing the mountains. Right. I remember that. Yeah. Yeah. I, remember I, got, them. I got quite a bit about that. And, and, and it was good. Some of it was pushback I needed. Like, you know, I, um, I literally wrote canoeing the mountains trying to address, you know, mainline and evangelical churches that were kind of white dominant spaces. And I don't talk about Sacagawea, who is the hero of the story, this, you know, native American teenage nursing mother kind of who would be completely marginalized. She was an enslaved person. I don't talk about her till the second to last chapter because it's kind of like I'm trying to make the point that you're as you learn you've also find that God is already working in the lives of people. But for so many folks, it felt like I just centered the whole thing in white privilege. So I got a pun- bunch of pushback on that. Good pushback that I've had to think about. And I also had a lot of folks say to me, "I just think this whole adapt leadership is wrong. We should just go back." Like people used to argue with me about post christendom nobody argues with me about the pandemic (laughs) like like i literally say i work with churches i talk to churches who don't talk to each other because of their theology but everybody's experiencing the same world being disrupted so i get so i've had less pushback about tempered resilience much more about the the struggle people have for wanting what would be called technical solutions you know expert quick fixes that will return us to our glory days um, having to literally say to people, I do believe it's about the future and not the past and really have to trust the God who's taking us into the future is, is still a hard thing for many
0: people. There may be people listening to this who are asking, well, how do you know when you've reached the breaking point and it's time to walk away? Yeah. So we would all like to think and hope that yes, we could forge that stone of hope out of the mountain of despair in our present context or in our organization or in our church, but what would you say to somebody who asks you the question, well, how do I know when it's time just to drop the hammer and walk away yeah. or the, the, the chisel and, yeah. and the tools? Uh, when do I walk away?
2: Well, I've had, I've, yeah, I have two answers to that. Uh, one comes from a Jewish rabbi and the other one comes from Raul Heifetz. Um, and it's both notes you know, notice I'm using the, I have a dream speech, which was a speech that was given four months before I was born. So we're talking about a project that then is still over almost 60 years old. I mean, I'm 57, like that many years ago, that speech was given. And that's been part of a project that is 400 years old for our African American brothers and sisters. So we're talking about a long haul and, you know, Rabbi Tarfun has this great quote where he says, you know, don't be in, do not be daunted by the enormity of the world's grief, you know, do justice now, love mercy now, walk humbly now. You are not obligated to complete the work, but neither are you allowed to desist from it. In other words, the work, the long-term work of being someone who participates in God's redeeming of the world, we are called to no matter what. Now acknowledge that the second part is, Ronald Heifetz says, to do that kind of work, you have to give that work back to the people. And I always feel like when I'm working with an organization over a long period of time— And eventually you get a group of people who are basically saying, no, we are not going to the promised land. We are, we're going to just stay right here or we're going back. I do think there comes a moment where I think you've got to ask yourself for me to be committed to the overall project of what God is doing in the world. Do I stay here or not? I think we should be long suffering, but not ever enduring. And so very often I'm coaching pastors or or leaders and I'm saying to them, maybe this is the place where you're going to experience the resistance and it might feel like failure that prepares you for the next thing. And, and I just like to remind people, you know, uh, somewhere between 70 and 90 percent of all change processes fail. So you can't mark this on how um, successful you are in a particular location. They actually even say that one of the things that most grounded, most leaders need to have to be able to be resilient, like the, the raw steel material, is to be grounded in something other than your need to be successful in leading change. And that grounding in the reality of God's love for you, no matter what, the grounding of your call, no matter what, the grounding of the relationships, no matter what, those things enable us to be able to hold lightly whether this particular place we're in or not is the place that we'll continue on.
1: So thanks for that, Todd. And as we wrap up, we love to ask every guest, uh, what are you reading lately? What, uh, what, what are you being informed by right now?
2: Well, so I'm reading um, several different books. I'm always reading lots of stuff. I'm reading a book, right? But what's really shaping me at the moment is this discussion, a discussion between the Dalai Lama and Archbishop Tutu on joy. Um, when, when Bishop Tutu passed away, I found myself going back to his writings and thinking about him as a person who had, who was known for joy. And, and when he went through all the things he went through with apartheid. And I, and there was this amazing discussion that he and the Dalai Lama had about joy. And really for 2022, the two words that I kind of, I kind of do a thing where I focus on words rather than resolutions. The two words I've had, one has been joy. And the other one is, is the word littleness. It comes out of Pope Francis's Christmas Eve message, where he talks about praying for the grace for littleness. And for me, this is the imagery in my head of like, what are the little leaven, the things of leaven that bring joy to the world and joy into my own life. So this book of, about joy that, that, the Dalai Lama and Desmond Tutu. It, it was not the book I expected to be reading in 2022, but it's been really pretty profound for me. Um, the, the second one that I read through most of 2021 that I've just keep spending a lot of my time on is Adam Grant's book, think again. And which is really where he talks about the fact that the most creative and entrepreneurial inventive uh, people are people who were not great thinkers. They were great rethinkers. They learned how to change their mind a lot and they learned how to learn a lot. And that for me has been a really important practice to think about. Is just, I even now ask my students, okay, who kind of, t- they're doing a doctoral work with me because they read Canoeing the Mountains. the first question I make them answer is, so what would you want me to rethink about Canoeing the Mountains if I, if, I, if I was rewriting it right now? And it's amazing how many people will immediately think, you know, you could have done this better, you could have done that better, you could have done this better. And those two things, joy, littleness, the humility of rethinking, those are kind of the center of the books that mm-hmm. I'm reading right now.
0: Thanks so much for sharing that, Todd. And thank you for being with us on Leading Forward. Uh, we'll have information in the show notes about your books and folks can learn more about everything that you're doing to help Christian leaders and leaders in any context really flourish and thrive. Uh, again, it's been a joy and a pleasure. Thank you so much, Todd. You're really welcome. Thanks for listening to Leading Forward. You can find helpful links in the show notes as well as all of our archived episodes at leadingforwardpodcast.com. Help us get out the word by sharing this episode with a friend and by rating and reviewing the show at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. It really does help. I'm Matthew Hall. I'll see you next time.